This audio recording is of Restoration Road's regular Sunday service, November 19th, 2017. The reader is Mark Haxo. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. today for us is uh, from Haggai chapter 2 and we're going to be studying verses 10 to 19 and these are the words. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food. Does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Maybe seated. Good morning. I realize that uh, we haven't very often asked for people to stand for the reading of God's word, but we uh, have just been stirred to think that that is important for us to do for lots of reasons. And so, as I begin, I want to remind us of something, especially as we as we study uh, an ancient book like Haggai, which is probably not the kind of book you maybe have spent too much of your devotional time in if you even know it was in the Old Testament. Um, You see, in times past, God's Word came to us through real live prophets like Haggai. God's men whom He chose spoke God's Word and in so revealed God's priorities. And today, God's Word comes through this, His living Word. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 12, tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is the nature of the word that we proclaim today. 
The words of Haggai, so this old book, should not be received or dismissed as dead declarations to a people that are long dead. The Scriptures, the book of Haggai, is living and active. And through it, God is, not did, is revealing His priorities to us right now. There's a word for us and He wants to speak to it. And so I want us to approach God's Word that way. And I'm going to pray that God moves me out of the way and does it with this passage that we're going to be in. So if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your goodness and Your greatness and Your grace. We recognize, Lord, that there is a ton about You that is a mystery. That Your ways are completely above our ways. And yet You promise, Lord, that You have revealed much to us and You have not left Your will for our lives a mystery. So thank You. Thank You for the book of Haggai and other books like that. Would You speak to us this morning? Holy Spirit, move me out of the way. Proclaim and teach what You need to teach. Pierce our hearts. Fill our minds with Your truth. If we need conviction, give it to us. Comfort, give it to us. Encouragement, give it to us. Instruction, give it to us. That Your name and the person and work of Jesus Christ may be glorified and our church may be edified. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, the book of Haggai, as I said, is an old book. And in a simple summary, it is a time when God's people have returned from exile and they are called to a rebuilding program of God's house. And it's important to notice the dates as you go through these books. Haggai has several dates, and so I want to break those down for you so you understand what's going on and getting the context of when and how these words are received from the Lord. According to Haggai 1.1, the first prophecy from Haggai came in the sixth month of the second year of this king named Darius or Darius of Persia. Okay, So in the sixth month of his second year of reign is when the first prophecy that Haggai spoke, and that was the prophecy where he said, get your priorities right. It was the first time where they were confronted that they had really rejected God by leaving His house in ruins and they had devoted themselves to basically building their own worship houses centered on their own lives. So meanwhile, God is watching this and seeing this. They are proceeding to find satisfaction in all kinds of other places in life and God in love, which is hard to believe, but in love makes their pursuit of those things unsatisfying. And through that, calls them back to Himself. He commands His people. He shows up and He says, repent. Stop seeking your kingdom first. Seek mine first. Basically, get to work on my work. That's the first prophecy. Haggai 2.1. He comes again. And this time, it is in the seventh month of the second year. So a month later, they have been building for 30-ish days or about a month after being challenged to repent, and they did, and now he's addressing their discouragement in working. So they've been working, but they're like looking at it going, this is not going to be as great as it was, and they are disillusioned. Even though their expectations are not being met, God comes and says, mine are. My expectations are being met perfectly. 
I expect this to happen. In fact, instead of looking at your work, guys, take your eyes off your circumstances. Take your eyes off of what you are doing. Lift your head. Look at me. Remember who I am. Now look back. Remember what I've done. Now look forward. Remember what I'm going to do and let that be the guide for what you are doing right now. Because they see it and they go, this is not going to be glorious. And he says, you're wrong. It's just a different kind of glorious. It's a greater glorious that is going to blow your expectations. So he basically says, at first, get to work on my work. And then he comes and says, I want you to get to work and work with my perspective of things, not yours. But before Haggai can say anything else, this other dude shows up. His name's Zechariah. It's the next book of the Bible. Now, because we are becoming increasingly biblically illiterate culture, we don't understand that as you open your Bible, not everything just happens as it's organized. Sometimes they're happening at the same time. So Zechariah and Haggai, they're at the same time. And so turn your Bibles, if you're in Haggai, turn over to the next book, which is Zechariah. And we're just going to read the first six verses. And Zechariah 1.1, so you have Haggai, sixth month. Haggai 2, seventh month. Zechariah 1, eighth month. So Zechariah comes in before Haggai says something else. And this is what he says. In the eighth month, in the second year of the same king, Beginning in verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, which is also the Lord of armies, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's declaring it to the same people who were already confronted once by Haggai, get to work, a second time by Haggai, work with God's perspective, and now he's saying return to me, which is kind of confusing but I'll explain. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord, speaking about their dads. Your fathers, where are they now? He says. And the prophets, do they live forever? Nope, all dead and gone. But... My words, my statutes, what I commanded to my servants, did they not overtake your fathers? And so about their fathers, he says, eventually they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so He has dealt with us. It's a really important word so that we can understand the third prophecy from Haggai. God, through Zechariah, shows up and says, look, I was angry. Don't forget. In other words, don't forget that there was a reason for the exile. You are returning from something. Don't forget how you got there in the first place. What your dads did. And remember, you, your fathers, they had the law. They had the temple. They had the sacrifices and yet they were sent into exile. So think of Haggai's people right now. They have and are restoring all those things. They've got the law. They've got the sacrifices. They're just about to get the temple. He says, yeah, your fathers had all that stuff and they were sent into exile. Why was that? 
Because they were religious, but unrepentant. They were worshipers, but they were also idolaters. They were faithful with their lips, but they were rebellious in their hearts. And so, what does God say? Return to me. Return to me. So, Zechariah is telling newly returned exiles to return to them. That kind of doesn't make sense, or does it? Returning, like, you don't have to be an English major to, to understand returning, like, implies a change in direction. I'm in one place and I'm going to another place. I have been turning toward one thing and I'm going to turn back towards this other thing. In the case of God's people, that has nothing to do with their physical location because in that sense, they have returned to God. But apparently, apparently, living in the place of God is not the same as living in the presence of God. Now that's scary. It's scary because there are many people like us gathering here in what we would call somewhat the place of God. The, the house of God. And there are many churches, but what Zechariah is telling the people that just because you're in the place of God doesn't mean you're actually in His presence. And that's the same as individuals. That's the same for couples and families and churches and communities. Like, man, you can look like you are in the place of God and not be in His presence. That's frightening. They have all the sacrifices. Going through all the motions. And yet, God says, you ain't near me. So much so, he says, return to me. To people who are returned. So then he says through Zechariah, don't ignore my prophets. Now Zechariah is saying this. He's like, really? You want me to say this? Like, don't ignore me. Right? Because it's going to be easy or tempting. I always wonder, like, why did God have the prophets say that? And nine times out of ten, he's having them say that because they're apt to do whatever it is they're telling them not to do, right? Don't ignore me. Why? Because people have ignored the prophets. Like when you're told, man, I am, I am worshiping the Lord, and him say, well, I need you to come and worship the Lord. What? And immediately you want to dismiss the prophet. Immediately you want to dismiss like, well, that can't be true. It doesn't make sense to me. Like basically... Few ever believe that they're unfaithful. Like, not many of us are like, well, I must be ignoring what God says. In truth, these people know what God says, and yet they are not doing what God says. They're missing the point. But wait, they're, but they're obeying. They are in a sense, and they're not in a sense. He warns His people, don't make the same mistake your fathers did where they really refused to truly listen to His Word. It doesn't mean they didn't check the boxes of obedience in certain areas. It means they really didn't listen to God's Word. And instead, they followed their own. They did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And in the end, they were cursed by God. And the truth is, that's what God said would happen. In the Old Testament, he said, look, obey me, things will go well. Obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you don't obey me, things are going to go bad. 
And that's why he says, what happened to the fathers? What happened to the prophets? You notice my word stayed there and my promises came true that you would be cursed. And that's what happened. So, God says, don't forget I was angry. Return to me. Don't ignore what my prophets say. And then Haggai shows up. Okay, so Haggai is the next prophet that we are not supposed to ignore. So what has Haggai said? And I'll be honest, if you read this text at first, you're like, what in tarnation would that mean for me today? We'll see if we can break it down. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 11 of Haggai chapter 2. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest said, nope. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, wine, stew, oil, or anything, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yep, it becomes unclean. So for the third time, if you've noticed, God uses Haggai's prophecy to ask questions. It begins with questions, which is very much in the spirit of our Lord Jesus worked. And the questions that are being asked are revealing things. It's not just like, hey, do you know the answer to this quiz? And it's not what's happening. God addresses the priests, those guys who are responsible, the experts to teach the law. And the first questions are about this holy meat. And the holy meat that they're referring to are the meat that is used in the sacrifices the priests were basically supposed to consume part of. Now the altar had been built, but there was no temple, which means there was no temple grounds of which is the place that the food was supposed to be eaten, so they would have to carry the meat somewhere else. And I believe the law indicated that as they carried this meat the, in the fold, if the blood ever got on their, their garment, it actually too was this holy thing and it would eventually have to be cleansed and not used again. But he's asking this question like, whether the holiness of that meat, if it were to come into contact with something that is common, whether it be stew or bread, if it touched it, does that holy meat transfer that holiness to that other thing? Does holiness transfer? And the answer is, no, it doesn't. And then the second question comes on. And the second question is about touching this unclean body, which is kind of a weird thing. An unclean body is really talking about a, touching a corpse. So if there's a dead body and someone is to come into contact with it, like that is in the, uh, in the law one of the highest degrees of defilement. So much so that you were sent away from uh, really the place of worship and you weren't allowed to worship until you went through what amounts to a cleansing process. And so the priest confirms, yes, if, if someone touches a dead body, Anything else that they touch becomes unclean. So if they were to touch the stew or the bread or whatever, that's unclean, 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 dispose of or clean. And so the first question is, does holiness and cleanliness transfer and make other things holy and clean? No. Does unholiness and dirtiness transfer? Yes. It transfers to everything. And then... God, through Haggai, gives the punchline. Thanks for answering correctly. By the way, 
You and everything you touch is unclean. What does verse 14 say? After they answered, then Haggai answered and said, So it is, is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. So you think about what these people have been doing, right? They've been making sacrifices, but he says, your sacrifices are worthless. They're unclean. And what is this revealing to us is, is the nature of sin. See, sin is not this behavioral problem that is fixed with better behavior. It's not an external problem that is fixed with external solutions. It's an internal, positional problem that requires an internal solution that is something only the Lord can do. So these people need to understand that even as they make these sacrifices, right, even as they go through their emotions, they're unclean. Sin contaminates. And by unclean, what I, what I really, like the simplest way to say is that they're unfit to worship. They're unfit to worship God. And they've been thinking, like, just try to put yourselves in the mindset, right? They, okay, I know that we were not doing what you wanted, but now we've started to do your work, Lord. We're making these sacrifices. We're, we're trying to be obedient. We're building this temple. And he says, dirty. Sin is, is, is not an issue related to our hands. It's related to our hearts. And that's why sin is so, so, per, so evil. And what I mean is it, 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 it can contaminate the most common and the most wonderful and the most religious of things and make them unclean. We kind of have this idea like, and wrongly so, here's the list of sins that are sin. And what we don't understand is that um, sin is that which comes from the inside out and can actually pervert everything, whether it be parenting, whether it be preaching. Like we can, we can be in the place of God, we can go through the motions that even God has commanded and yet be doing so apart from God, which is dangerous. So what does God say? Look, through Zechariah, don't ignore me. Don't ignore me when I say you and everything you touch is unclean. So I want you to think about children, right? I've got five kids. And when I was a kid, I was a kid, we'd go out with a bunch of friends and we'd come out and everyone is clean except me. I would be covered in head to toe with dirt and gunk and yuck. And I was just that kid that was like a magnet. My, my mom, like my friend would come in, I remember it so clearly like, why is your friend like spotless and you are just destroyed? Like that doesn't make any sense. What were you doing? Did you do something? No, we were both just like, you know, swimming in the swamp. Like it didn't look like he was swimming in the swamp, right? You are just, but I would never admit that I was dirty. I'm not, I'm not dirty, right? It's like asking your kids to wash their hands before they eat, right? Hey, can you wash your hands? I'm not dirty. No, your hands are dirty. No, they're not. Look, they're clean. They're clean, right? <laughs> or after like a practice, whatever, your kids get all sweaty. I'm like, okay, you need to take a shower. I didn't sweat. No one ever thinks they're unclean. 
Like, no, I, I could tell you why I'm not clean. It's like, it's kind of like when you got a chunk of food in your mouth, right? And, and no one tells you, and like, you have to, oh, I don't got anything in my mouth. What are you talking about, right? And that one friend is gracious enough to go, you got a chunk of nastiness, like, right in your teeth there, and it just looks gross, and you've been talking for like, or, or your breath could just melt paint off walls. Like, there's something <laughs> wrong, right? Everyone has that one friend because no one else is friendly enough to do that, right? But God is. Like, you have to see this as, like, we kind of like, oh, gosh, that's mean. How could you tell him that's unclean? He's telling him, look, you're not, you can't worship me. You're, you're unclean. I, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to love you, but I can't because you're dirty and you won't admit it. And how do they not admit it? Well, if you're a little kid, right, you wash your hands with some leaves and you're good to go. If you are more of an adult, you wash your life with religious works. Right? And you're like, oh, I've done these things. I'm clean. The Lord says, that's not impressing me. Did you know that you can avoid relationship with God by being religious just as easily as you can avoid relationship with God by being irreligious? Like you just basically, in one sense, I'm going to avoid God by doing bad things. Or I'm going to avoid God by doing good things. Instead of making idols out of creation, you make an idol out of yourself. So God is trying to reveal to them, look, it's fantastic that you are endeavoring to be obedient, that you're making sacrifices, that you are building, but I'm more interested in the builders than I am in the building. More in the worshiper than even the worship itself. It reminds me of what David says in Psalm 51 as he is speaking about his own sin and wanting to be right before the Lord. And he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And we've titled this series First Things because I don't want to dismiss, and I'll add this caveat, that the Lord does call us to work. But there's an order to things. And if your heart is broken, if you are poor in spirit, if you acknowledge who you are before the Lord, works will flow out of that. But we don't start on this end and think that that's somehow going to change our heart. So through Haggai, God, He doesn't, he doesn't let up. It's like He's kind of going 25, like, let's just kind of go a little faster here. Make it a little more uncomfortable before He brings blessing. So He continues to talk about what happens to somebody when you love God with your lips and not your heart. And so he begins in verse 15. And it's interesting, he says, now then consider from this day onward. He goes, I want you to remember this forever. He says, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. He's like, remember before I came and challenged you and stirred you to obedience. Remember that time when you left the House of Worship in Ruins. And he says, how'd you fare? How was life back then? He said, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were 10. 
When one came to wine vat to draw out 50 measures, there were but 20. So he's describing to them, do you remember what life was like? Right? Because the restoration or the like, kind of resetting of the rebuilding program, program was an idea of they're re-entering into relationship with God. It wasn't just about the building. And he says, I want you to remember what it was like when you were not in relationship with me. And I'll call that living in sin. You go, really? That's what we call living in sin? That seems kind of odd. Like when I think of living in sin, I think of people pursuing sexual morality and living in sin or indulging in substances and living in sin. Or, or okay, when the Lord showed up and told them that you have rejected me completely and your priorities are out of whack, it's difficult for us to say, I'm living in sin if God's just not that important in my life. But that's what God tells us. You are living in sin when the Lord is not number one. When the Lord isn't the one to dictate whether you're making decisions right or wrong, whether you're finding your strength from Him, whether you are basically sacrificing your life and seeking His kingdom first. He says, if you're not seeking my kingdom first, we can categorize that as living in sin. So he says, what was it like living in sin? How did your life go when you lived in sin? And what does he say? It wrecked everything. In what way? Everything was harder. Everything was less than I expected. Everything, the daily life of things, was always unsatisfying. Why is that? Because sin robs you of joy. Sin robs you of understanding. Sin robs you of strength. When we live in the flesh, we are not living in the Spirit. So imagine what life without the Spirit is like. Life without the Comforter. Life without the Teacher. Life without the Helper. All titles of the Spirit. It's an interesting. We look at our lives at times and we go, man, my marriage is unsatisfying. Have you considered maybe that that's not actually a horizontal relationship problem? Because what we want to do when things are unsatisfying and things are not joyful and things are not where I think they should be, we go, it must be this person's fault. What if there's something wrong with this relationship that actually is screwing up those ones? When your job, oh, my job is difficult, it's because this boss is just a jerk. Maybe. But even enduring his jerkness, are you able to find joy? And if not, that has nothing to do with your relationship with him. Because if your joy is based off that dude or that lady, that's going to fail at some point. Right? So anything, any, any context you find yourself in, we have to be careful when we, we start feeling unsatisfied, we start feeling like, man, this is, uh, 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 uh. it might be a problem with this relationship and not these. Life without the Spirit is a life that is uncertain. It's a life that's indecisive. It's a life that's uncomfortable. And it's not to suggest, again, be careful how we're thinking about this, that as I walk in the Spirit, everything goes perfectly. No, it is to declare that when you walk with the Spirit, even when things don't go perfectly, you're at peace. So, 
For Israel, people of Haggai, God comes and he says, look, this isn't just merely like your dissatisfaction, your lack of joy. This is not just a consequence of your sin. In fact, what he says, it's a direct result of his judgment. This is a scary verse. Verse 17. Remember what that life was like? I struck you and all the products of your work with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me. That yet's really important. That yet reveals why God is making it hard. He's not making it hard because he is some capricious, mean God that's like, mm, I'm going to punish you because I can. That's what bad dads do. And I've done that occasionally. Oh, man, yeah, you make it hard for me. I make it hard for you. Yeah. That's not what our perfect Heavenly Father does. He is bringing judgment upon them so that they will turn to Him. He is making their lives unsatisfying so they will find Him satisfying. Blight, mildew, hail, like... These are the active judgments of God in Scripture. And so he pounded on them. And he pounded on them to turn them from their sin. And when they refused to confess and repent, he pressed harder. Again, this reminds me of what David said in Psalm 32 about his own sin. He says, for when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Right? Man, this is getting hard. Is there some sin you need to confess? That's hindering your relationship with the Lord? and He's lovingly pressing you? So, we see that God, even in His pressing, shows grace to the unclean. Do we, do we see the, the beauty of this? The Lord loves us enough to not let us remain in that place of uncleanness. Like we, we, we kind of like, we get pressed, life goes hard, and we're like, ah, Lord, I hate that. But in truth, that it's His going, I love you enough, I don't want you to stay there. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you to go that far. He is the one that comes and tells us, you're spiritually dirty. And how did He start? He pursues us by sending His prophet. He pursues us by speaking His words. He even pursues us so far as doing the work to stir our hearts so that we'll turn to Him. Do we see that it's about what the Lord is doing? And, and the people, I think, in Haggai's time are starting to get distracted by what they're doing to the point where maybe they could start going through the motions. Hey, we got obedience. We got the sacrifices. We got the temple now. I'm not sure we need God. That happens. We kind of like, how is that even possible? Well, I think you're kidding yourself. We can be doing all kinds of good things in the name of the Lord without the Lord. And I don't say that's a good thing. I think that's perhaps the worst thing. 
So Haggai writes in the last two verses, consider this day onwards. Remember this too. He's like, remember these two things. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is there still seed in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day, I will bless you. So think about the day they began to rebuild. The day where they turned and they started to recommit. That is the day God began to bless even though they didn't fully get it yet. The moment they repented, the moment they turned, though they didn't fully understand even what God was asking of them and what God was offering them, He still began to restore. God has His priorities and it's not the building. Right? You've got to understand that like, He brought them back to the land, but being in the land is not what made them acceptable. He stirred in their hearts to start doing the sacrifices on the altar, but that's not what made them holy. Having a finished temple, which He encouraged them to do, is not what makes them clean. Living in relationship and dependence upon a gracious God was what made them clean. See, the promise was like the promise of blessing was connected by or to the temple, but it's not the temple itself necessarily. Like the temple was this place where, where the people of God would, God said, I'm going to have relationship with you. I'm going to dwell in this place. But we have to remember a couple of things. One, the sacrifices that, that were at the temple that really kind of atoned for the sins and, and, and navigated, if you will, or made the relationship pure were always temporary. They came back year after year, month after month, week after week. Another sacrifice, another sacrifice. I am dirty, I am dirty, I am dirty. Second thing, we have to remember this. There was nothing intrinsically magical about the blood of sheep and goats. It's not as if God said, hey, I noticed those sheep over there are really sparkly and they glow. May they have some kind of magic smurf powers to cover sin. No. The reason why the sheep blood and the goat blood or whatever offering was acceptable is because God said, I will accept that. It was about God deeming, this is how I will show grace. This is when I will show grace. It will be because I have said, I'm showing grace in this way. The power to atone was a gift of the one God who said, I will accept this substitute in your place. And so we see that God's call to a people already in His place to return to me and His warning to a people worshiping through sacrifices are unfit actually to worship is the revelation that they need God perpetually. They need Him to bring them into His presence, but they also need Him to keep them in His presence. See, God's first priorities, His first thing is not our work, but our hearts. It's not what we do, it's what we believe, and particularly what we believe about Jesus. And we have to remember, like, we can get a lot of things right in this place. You can get a lot of things right in your marriage, you can get a lot of things right in your home and in your jobs and all these places, but without Jesus, 
Nothing's right. Jesus said what was most important. In John 17, that's his big prayer uh, on the week he was to be killed, the evening he was to be killed. You know what he said in his prayer, John 17, 3? This is eternal life. Okay, what is it? This is eternal life. How would you answer that question? Hey, what's eternal life? This is eternal life. That they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do we understand that eternal life is about eternal relationship with our infinite eternal God? That going to heaven isn't about being able to run around in fields and do whatever we want because that'll be really fun. It's about being with Jesus. But then, you know what else Jesus taught? The most frightening passages in Scripture in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it, oh, the one who does the will. Hey, there's a do. What do we got to do? But he continues, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That sounds like doing something. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart me from me, your workers of lawlessness. These are people who preached in Jesus' name. Cast out demons in Jesus. Did all kinds of things in Jesus' name. And he says to them, I, didn't, I never knew you. You think of Haggai's people, right? They're, they're going through the motions. They're just sacrifices. Building the temple. All these things. And is it possible God's saying, look, make sure you know me. I'm glad that these things are happening, but you still need to return to me. Your hands are doing great. Your lips, rad. But your hearts. And then in John 16, 29, Jesus is asked the question in response to His statement, do the works of God. He's like, well, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So if you think about the work of God is, is the thing we're talking about. What is it? What is most important? What is God's most important work that we can do? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. Important verse. Colon. Here's the work. That you believe in Him who He sent. That you believe in Jesus that you trust Jesus, that you follow Jesus. That's the most important work. We serve a God of grace. And by that, I mean a God who says and commands our holiness, but He knows we are unholy. We serve a God who, who commands us to obey, but knows that we're rebellious. We have a God who says, worship me, but He knows we worship other things. He doesn't ask us to work as much as to admit that we can't and to trust and believe in the work of Jesus on our behalf. And that changes everything. By grace, through faith, Jesus saves us and He makes us holy and He makes us obedient and He makes us able to worship. And no amount of religious soap is going to cleanse the sin of our hearts. Jesus cleans us from the inside out and then He comes to dwell in us in the most ridiculously amazing way. 
for those who love Jesus, for those who claim to follow Jesus, the Bible teaches that the presence of Jesus now resides in our heart and in the church. And according to Peter, he says something pretty phenomenal. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, as you come to Him, as you keep coming to Him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you come to Him, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, you sec- think about the context of Haggai who are doing everything they can to build something for God. And what does God say in Jesus? We're no longer building anything for Him. He is building in us. Though we are spiritually clean in Christ, let's be honest, we get dirty. But insofar as we make every effort to think and speak and act in dependence and in surrender to Jesus as men and women, as husbands and wives, as fathers and moms, as brothers and sisters, insofar as we are in submission to Jesus, dependent upon Jesus, surrendered to Jesus as the reason why we can go before our Lord, any effort we make is made acceptable to God regardless of our success in any of those things. We see this thing, His success, Jesus' success becomes my success even if I'm not successful. Even if all my efforts fail, even if I don't build whatever I believe I'm supposed to build, God says, I'm still building you. I'm still restoring you. I still have you. For those who don't know Jesus, and I know you're here, I want you to understand that coming to the place of God, if we call it that, Coming into the church today doesn't make you a follower of Jesus any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. The gospel message is not advice to follow or something you're supposed to accomplish. It's simply news to believe. Following Jesus is not about working for God. It's about acknowledging that you are dirty and you cannot clean yourself. And accepting the work that He has done and He is doing for you. So I plead with you to stop pretending as if you're dirty or clean, I should say. You're dirty. And you know what a follower of Jesus is? One of those people willing to surrender that truth and admit, I'm broken, I'm dirty, cat's out of the bag, I need Jesus. Turn to Jesus and He's going to return to you. And I would argue in the very end, the day they returned, the day they turned to Jesus, that that moment, God began to bless. But they're looking at the fields, right? And they're like, sure, Lord. Because yeah, it seems like, are the seeds in the, in the barn? They're like, no, they're in the fields. And every harvest that's come in the last 10 years has been really pathetic. And he says, don't worry. The seeds are in the ground. But as you are in relationship with me, blessings coming. Insofar as they continued to be dependent upon Jesus, surrender to Jesus, they could expect future blessing, and so can we. Praise be to God for His grace to us. The Gospel is simple. 
Jesus makes dirty sinners clean. Let's pray.